Hey everyone, it's Michelle. And Brandy. And this is Spooky Shit. So this week we're going to be talking about murders in the LGBTQ community. I'm going to be starting talking about Charlie Howard. And then I am going to talk about Michael Sandy. And then I'm doing a second story on Nyria Johnson and Brandy Coleman. Warning. This episode may contain graphic details. Listener discretion is advised. Forgot that the person's name is Brandy. Oh, shit. It was weirding me out typing. I was like, ooh, this is creepy. (laughs) All right. You ready? Yeah. Charlie Howard was born on January 31st, 1961 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Charlie was a gay man, white, with fair hair, and he was described as small-boned and suffered from asthma. On one source I read, it claimed that he had a learning disability, but didn't say what it was or like specify any more on that. In the 70s and 80s, as you can imagine, a lot of gay people were in the closet, but not Charlie. He was very much out and proud, being described as flamboyant by some. If he felt like wearing makeup, jewelry, or typical girly things, he just said fuck it and did it. He was well known for randomly bursting out and singing the song, I am what I am, which I don't actually know, but I guess it's described as a gay anthem and it's from a musical. Hmm. As a kid, Charlie was frequently laughed at and called a sissy because he walked and talked differently than other boys his age. In high school, the taunting got worse. Others would shove him and call him the F-slur. He had to have a tough exterior to get through his days without crying or running away. But underneath the shell, Charlie was honestly pretty much traumatized. (laughs) He had lived for years with people bullying him for his sexual orientation and wondered if he'd ever be left alone or he'd just have to go on forever being harassed. The bullying in high school was so much that Charlie chose not to attend his graduation because he didn't want to put his family through having to hear all the insults that would be hurled at him. I thought that was fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, that's really sad. So bad. Following his graduation, Charlie knew he wouldn't be attending college as his grades weren't good. Being openly gay led to less career options for him in his hometown, and he didn't get along with his stepfather, so he decided to move. He eventually ended up in Ellsworth, Maine, where he lived with a boyfriend. This lasted until January of 1984, when the relationship ended. Looking for job opportunities and a social life, he headed for Bangor, Maine, which had a population of about 30,000. I should say has a population of about 30,000. I could not find how the population was in the 80s. (laughs) Well, in this new town, Charlie was originally homeless and didn't know what to do until he befriended locals Paul Nodden and Scott Hamilton, who invited him to stay at their place while you figure things out. He stayed there for a month, but there weren't any good job opportunities. So with the convincing of his new friends, he decided to return back home to live with his mom and stepdad once again. Within just a week of being back in Portsmouth at his parents' house, Charlie knew he had to leave again. He moved in with another man, but when this didn't work out, he called up Paul and Scott. They said that they could tell he was miserable and hear the pain in his voice, so they invited him back to their home in Bangor. When Charlie arrived this time, he was in a much better place. Although he had just ended a brief relationship, he was now feeling really positive and determined to make this work. Despite never being that into church, he joined a local one that had gay members, and through this, he also joined a support group called Interweave, where he was able to make more friends who cared and accepted him as he was. I also just thought it was kind of cool that there was even a church that had openly gay members in a very small town in Maine in the 80s. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm like, what are the chances? (laughs) Charlie even got a part-time job. And then he eventually moved into his own apartment on First Street, adopted a kitten, and entered into a relationship with a man named Roy Odgen. To show his thanks to Paul and Scott for all they'd done, before moving he surprised them by decorating their home and preparing them an extravagant Easter dinner. I guess I'm hungry right now because I read that and I was like, whoa, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Like a vegan one, though. (laughs) While this new apartment was a little run down, Charlie made the best of it by decorating it with plants and posters. Things were looking up. So, unsurprisingly, people were pretty homophobic in 1984. This was no different in Bangor. I don't even know if that's how you say it. Bangor? Bangor. Bangor. 
In Bangor specifically, there were no gay bars or anything. The only really accepting places towards the LGBTQ plus community were Charlie's church and the support group that he was already in. At that time, many victims of gay bashing wouldn't report their attacks due to a lack of support. Charlie had friends who had experienced physical and verbal attacks, and he himself occasionally fell victim to these types of harassment. Like I said before, Charlie was very open about being gay and had no problem saying and wearing whatever he wanted. Some people in Bangor did not like this at all. High school boys would taunt him. He was once told to leave a nightclub for dancing with a man. And once at a market, a woman began to yell at him, shouting, you queer and you pervert. Obviously terrified, Charlie hurried and left the store, but not before turning around to blow a kiss at the woman. All these homophobic attacks, especially the one at the grocery store, made him more wary of strangers, and sometimes he was afraid to even go out. One day, Charlie left his apartment and found his kitten had been strangled and left on his doorstep. Hmm. On Saturday, July 7th, 1984, Charlie had been attending a potluck party at a support group with his boyfriend. Around 10 p.m., the two left and began to walk to the post office so Charlie could check his mail. As the couple began to walk up State Street and cross the... I'm going to butcher this. I am so sorry. Kinduskeg. 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 Stream. Yep. And And cross the Kinduskeg. Oh my God. I said it's so good in my head. It was a stream bridge. A car full of teenagers began to slow down. Inside the car were James Francis Baines, 15. Sean I. Mabry, 16. Daniel Ness, 17, and two unnamed teenage girls. The five of them had just left a party to go and buy alcohol with a fake ID one of the girls had when they saw Charlie walking down the street. After stopping, the three boys left the girls in the car and went to follow Charlie on foot. Apparently, at least the driver of the car had previously harassed Charlie as he recognized the car and began to run. The three teens chased him, yelling homophobic slurs. Reportedly, they were only harassing him because a few days earlier, Charlie had made sexual overtures to one of them. A lot of people don't believe this, and I am one of those people. (laughs) I don't think that that happened. Or if it did, he probably didn't realize that they were like a straight teenager and just like didn't push, you know? Mm -hmm. Like maybe said something and was like, oh, whatever. So... Reminder here that Charlie had asthma, so not long after starting to run, he became unable to catch his breath and he fell on the ground. Roy, meanwhile, kept running further down the street before stopping and looking back. The three boys caught up to Charlie and began to beat and kick him. 15-year-old James shouted that they should throw Charlie over the bridge and grabbed him by the legs. 17-year-old Daniel grabbed him too and they began to lift Charlie up to the railing. He was terrified, and I didn't mention this before, but Charlie was actually unable to swim, so he grabbed the railing and begged them not to throw him, telling them how he couldn't swim, but they pried his hand loose and began to lift him up over it, with 16-year-old Sean giving Charlie the final push. Fuck. Yeah. After throwing him 20 feet below into the stream, the three laughing boys began to head back to the car, which the girls had been trying to start. I'm not totally clear if this means, like, they were trying to start it because they were personally trying to get away or if they were trying to start it rather to, like, help out the boys. Probably that one, honestly. I mean, it wasn't their car. And they were probably also homophobic if they hung out with them, let's be real. True. While heading back, the boys noticed Roy and threatened him not to tell anyone what had just happened. Obviously, Roy was like, fuck that, and immediately ran for help when the car drove away, pulling the first fire alarm he could find on State Street. Within a few minutes of being thrown over the bridge, a search began to try and save Charlie. It wasn't until a couple of hours later, at 12.10 a.m., that his body was found in about three feet of water a few hundred feet downstream. He was just 23 years old. His autopsy later revealed that Charlie had suffered from a severe asthma attack and drowned after being attacked. I would like to say now, if someone tells you they can't swim, they can't swim. You don't need to test it. Also, don't do that to people who can swim. I should be clear there. (laughs) Don't do anything like that. Don't do anything at all. But also, he was not lying when he said he couldn't swim, motherfuckers. While rescuers were searching for Charlie in the stream, the three teenagers who had murdered him had gone back to their party and bragged to guests there about what they had done, calling the bridge Chuckahomo Bridge. Oh my god. Uh Uh-huh. 
The next day, upon learning that their victim had died, Daniel Ness turned himself into police, saying they had him in to kill Charlie, and they were basically just messing with him. I don't even know what kind of fucking excuse you could have for throwing someone off a bridge, but they were like, oh, we didn't think he died, though. Sean and James planned to go jump a freight train and skip town, but thought better of it when they got to the railroad tracks, so they went back home and were also arrested. Upon arrest, the three teens were sent to the Hancock County Jail for one night before being released back to their parents' custody the next day, as authorities agreed that the teens posed no further threat to the community. That same evening, more than 200 people attended a memorial service for Charlie held at his church. Following this, they all took candles and headed to the bridge, where Charlie's mom requested that someone drop a white rose into the water for her son. The procession then made its way back to the police station where they chanted, We are friends of Charlie Howard and we are singing for his life, as onlookers yelled at them. Not sure what they yelled, probably don't want to know what they yelled, to be honest. One week after his death, someone had spray-painted the words, Epsler's Jump Here, where Charlie had been thrown. So there was some debate over whether the three teens who threw Charlie were going to be tried as adults or not, but ultimately they ended up being tried as juveniles, pleading guilty to manslaughter charges. They were all sentenced on October 1st, 1984 to the Maine Youth Center, and their sentences were not to exceed their 21st birthdays. Their records are sealed, but reportedly Sean was released after just 22 months, with James falling soon after, serving two years. As far as Daniel goes, I was not able to find out exactly how long he served. But I'm assuming just as little time as the others. In 2009, 25 years after Charlie was killed, the Bangor Daily News attempted to locate the three now middle-aged men who had killed him to interview them about the murder. They were unable to locate Sean Mabry and Daniel Ness, but after locating James Baines, were declined an interview. What is known is that James, who was the youngest, he was 15 at the time of the murder, was working at an electrical firm and living in Bangor and was now married with a family. As an adult, James began to regularly go to local students and groups to speak to them about how important it is to be tolerant. He went on to co-author a book in 1994 called Pentinence, of which he did not receive any profits, and addressed the Maine state legislator in support of a bill that would ban discrimination based on sexual orientation. So he actually was like trying to redeem himself as much as he could yeah which is good at least i feel like a lot of these stories you hear like and they said i'd do it again (laughs) that's true (laughs) i was actually surprised i was like oh my god finally someone who regrets it (laughs) originally the paper was unable to get a hold of the other two killers despite their online searches they were however able to discover that while james and daniel had no criminal records as adults Sean Mabry had been convicted in the late 80s and early 90s of misdemeanors, including assault and criminal mischief. His last conviction had been in 1992. In 1994, Sean took part in an interview where he expressed his regret in his part of the killing, saying how he thought of Charlie every single day. In his own words, Charlie Howard was so young, he was helpless that night and three reckless kids came along and just for the hell of it, tossed him over the bridge. Because of our actions, Charlie Howard lost his life. So, I mean, two out of three regretting it. That's better than normal. True. They, I should say, I don't think I, like, acknowledge it, but they still were never never able to find the other dude. <laughs> so, I don't know what he thinks. He probably changed his name. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I would, too. I'm surprised that these other people kept their name. And the one guy stayed in the same town. But, I mean, I guess he openly talked about it. Yeah. Can you imagine going to a fucking school assembly and this guy's like, I killed somebody as a teenager. I'd be like, what the fuck? Psycho? I know, psycho, bitch. (laughs) As for Charlie, his body was buried in Orchard Grove Cemetery in Kittery, Maine, where his grave remains unmarked. Nearby the site of his death, there is a stone memorial in Charlie's honor that was erected by the Bangor City Council and members of the LGBTQ plus community. The monument says, may we, the citizens of Bangor, continue to change the world around us until hatred becomes peacemaking and ignorance becomes understanding. In 2011, Charlie's memorial was vandalized when someone spray painted it with a homophobic slur, but this was soon cleaned up by his family and friends. So that was still like almost 30 years after he died and 
still people in that town were homophobic. That's great. Super great. July 7th, the day that Charlie died, is now known as Diversity Day in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Lesbian Gay Political Alliance, now known as Equality Maine, was formed following Charlie's murder. There is also a library in Portland, Maine, open to the public named the Charlie Howard Memorial Library, which is maintained in Charlie's memory by the Maine Speak Out Project. Charlie's murder went on to inspire a poem by Mark Doty called Charlie Howard's Descent, a novel by Bet Green titled The Drowning of Stephen Jones, and most famously, in my opinion at least, it inspired Stephen King while he was writing the horror novel It. So if you've read this book or more recently watched It Part 2, you may remember that there was a character named Adrian in the beginning, and Adrian was a gay young adult who was thrown over a bridge by three homophobic teenagers. But of course, because it's a fictional novel, this character was killed by an evil alien clown rather than drowning. (laughs) Slightly different. (laughs) But a little bit of backstory in case this seems like super fucking random to any of you. Stephen King actually lived at least part-time in Bangor, Maine at that time. He had actually just begun writing it, which was to take place in Derry, which is literally Stephen King's fictional version of Bangor, when the murder occurred, and he was so upset at this cruel act of homophobia that he included it in his story. He later said, At the time I started writing it, the Howard murder had just happened. It was fresh in my mind and fitted my idea of Derry as a place where terrible things happened. And maybe needless to say, I was outraged. It was a hate crime. I already knew that. That's honestly how I heard about this story because I've read it. I've read a lot of Stephen King's novels. And yeah, I I knew that story. And I was like, fuck, that's fucking crazy, dude. Dang. But yeah. And a lot of people in the community, I should say, because I said like some people were being homophobic. A lot of people were outraged and were like, this kind of thing doesn't happen here. It happens everywhere, you guys. Don't let people be homophobic. (laughs) True. If people are even being a little bit, you need to call them out. Because if you don't call them out, they'll just think that's okay. And that just leads to escalation. And escalation leads to violence. That's my little PSA for you all. But to end the story, I'm going to go ahead and read the poem by Mark Doty. Oh, and just a heads up. I feel like I read poems weird. Because, you know, they always pause at odd places. So if I sound interesting i apologize (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's not me it's just i don't know how to read poems correctly (laughs) okay between the bridge and the river he falls through a huge portion of the night it is not as if falling is something new over and over he slipped into the gulf between what he knew and how he was known what others wanted opened like an abyss the laughing stock clerks at the grocery Women at the luncheonette, amused by his gestures. What could he do, live with one hand tied behind his back? So he began to fall into the star-faced section of night between the trestle and the water because he could not meet a little town's demands. And his earrings shone and his wrists were as limp as they were. I imagine he took the insults and made of them a place to live. We learn to use the names because they are there. Familiar furniture. And then it has the F slur, which I'm not going to say was the bed he slept in, hard and white, but simple somehow. Queer, something sharp, but finally useful. A tool, all the jokes a chair, stiff back to keep the spine straight. A table, a lamp. And because he's fallen for 23 years, despite whatever awkwardness his filling arms and legs assume, he is beautiful. And like any good diver, he only an edge of fear, he transforms into grace. Or else he is not afraid, and in this way climbs back up the ladder of his fall, out of the river, into the arms of the three teenage boys who hurled him from the edge. Really boys now, afraid, their father's car shivering behind them, headlights on, and tells them it's alright, that he knows they didn't believe him when he said he couldn't swim, and blesses his killers in the only way the dead can afford to forgive. The end. Well... Well, reading out loud made me, like, way more sad about that. <laughs> I laugh about it. Reading it in my head, I was, like, struggling to understand it out loud. I was like, fuck, that's sad. I don't know about the part, though, the kind of assuming he would forgive his killers. And I was like, mm. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm a really bitter person and I know I wouldn't. 
I'd be yeah. yeah, I probably wouldn't either. I'm petty as fuck. I know. I know. I think a lot of people like to assume that. They were like, wow, he would have forgiven you. And I'm like, would he though? Because I feel like I'd be like, wow, I'm 23 and I just got murdered. I wouldn't feel very fucking forgiving. But, you know. Yeah. I haven't fucking lived. Exactly. But yeah, that's my story on Charlie Howard. Okay. Michael J. Sandy was born on October 12th, 1977. He was a native of Bellport, New York, and lived in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. You know, for, for any New Yorkers <laughs> that know I, the area. I was like, I watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. Yeah. They talk about Brooklyn sometimes on Law & Order SVU. True. I've already forgotten the name of the other area because I've never heard of it, to be honest. <laughs> Me either. I don't know New York. Yeah, no. Oh, Bronx. The only ones oh, you hear yeah. of is the Bronx, Brooklyn. Queens. Queens. I don't even know if we have any New York listeners, but if we do, please come in here and tell us how dumb we are. <laughs> yeah, for reals. We did the same thing, though, talking about San Diego. We're like, oh, Mission Valley, OB, PB. <laughs> Like, huh, what? Yeah, whenever I first moved here, I was like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I know, or like when you say you live in San Diego, it's like, uh, what part? <laughs> I know, it's a pretty big county. <laughs> yeah, like North County. I know. Like... <laughs> We're both in San Diego, but you're like 40 minutes away, so. <laughs> I know, that's wild. It's so weird. <laughs> so Michael worked as a display designer at the IKEA store in Hicksville, New York. Oh, I love Ikea. I was like, that's a pretty cool job. That seems like a really fun job, to be honest. Yeah, you just go fucking design all the displays. Sick. I bet you get really criticized if you do a bad job. People are harsh there. True. Robert goes into sections. He's like, this one sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah. Michael was brutally attacked by a group of white men who intentionally lured him to rob him. Oh my god. He's black, you said, yes? Yes. Okay. So, on the night of October 8th, 2006, Michael met 20-year-old Anthony Fortunato. Okay. (laughs) Cool name. Oh, um, Michael was 29 at the time. Wait, 28. So he was 28 and he met 20-year-old Anthony Fortunato in an online chat room who was posing as a gay man. What? He was, like, catfishing, pretending to be gay? Yeah. Anthony was. Michael actually was gay. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. I'm very scared as to where this is going and because I know the theme this week. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever, like, forget what our... uh... Like, our subject is, and then you listen to stories, and you're like, oh, shit, they died? Yeah. Yeah, I do that a lot. Like, I was like, wow, what's going to happen next? And I was like, oh, fuck, I know what's going to happen next. Oh, right. (laughs) It's a murder story. Yeah, literally. (laughs) But yeah, Anthony engaged in a chat with Michael. He was, like, chatting with Michael, but his friend, 19-year-old John Fox, was with him. Ugh. So they were texting or, like, messaging Michael, like, together. That's just creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, after exchanging emails about having sex, Anthony arranged for them to meet up at Plum Beach within an hour of them, like, talking. Oh, my gosh. Plum Beach was, like, a rest stop, or is a rest stop, and oh, no. a, p- a popular cruising location on Belt Park Parkway. Okay, do you want to say what cruising is for people who may not know? You know, it's just when you go in your car and it's a boom boom. No, I'm just kidding. I was like, I feel like there's a different version of cruising. What's your version? The version I've heard of is people, gay men, like back in the day, going there to pick each other up to have sex. Oh. (laughs) That makes more sense, right? Yeah, it does. Now you have me feeling like I'm a pervert. No, <laughs> for that knowing that makes a lot of sense. That's I love why that I asked you, and you're like just driving around. You just cruise, you know. 
<laughs> no, I I mean, I'll fact check and I'll delete it if it's not true. But yeah, I'm pretty sure cruising is like something that people used to do to go and like pick each other up. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense of like. They went there to hook up. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, they were no. talking about having sex. It's like the thongs in Australia all over again. <laughs> she was wearing thongs. <laughs> If you haven't listened, it was a story about a woman who was wearing sandals, and Brandy was like, these reporters were perverts. (laughs) Talking about her thongs. Her thong. That was so fucking good. Oh, I'm sick. That was classic. That was in our... What was it? Lost in the Wilderness episode. Go check it out. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt you. I totally thought you were about to be like, oh, cruising is, but you didn't even know. No, I didn't. (laughs) But yeah. Anthony and John then departed for Plum Beach alongside friends. I'm going to butcher this. All good. Ela Shrove, who was 20 years old, and 17-year-old Gary Timmons. Jeez. So tiny baby. Oh, really young. I mean, they're all pretty young. They're all under 21. True. I guess I was just surprised that there was going to be someone under 18, too, because I thought my story was crazy for that. <laughs> no, it's a 20, 19, two 20 year olds, 19 year olds, and 17. That was so young. Also, it's really freaking me out that it was like a whole group of them against one person. Mm-hmm. This is like really similar to mine, actually, in that aspect. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Mike, Micro drove to the location and met up with John. And then they drove together to Howard Beach, where Anthony, Ela, and Gary were already waiting. So did he think that the person he picked up was actually, like, the Anthony he'd been talking to? Yeah. Or they probably probably fake names. What am I talking about? I mean, it was a screen name, but it makes sense. Yeah, he didn't know who he was talking to, so yeah. Yeah, you you. I mean, it makes sense later on. Or oh, okay. You could see why. Okay, cool. So shortly after Michael arrived, witnesses saw two young white men approaching his car. At that time, Michael was confronted by the by two of the young men who began looking through his car. Ugh. Oh, I really like. I should have looked up how to say his name. The other it's kid. Russian. Oh, I can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, where's Leah? But that was German that she knew. (laughs) That was German and she abandoned us. (sighs) I'm about to call her Leah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Do you happen to know Russian by chance? Yeah. What? How do you spell it? I cast Robert. I think it's I-L-Y-A. Hey, Robert. A Russian name spelled I-L-Y-A. Ilya. Ilya. He said Ilya. Yeah. Ilya? He said, yeah, Ilya. He said that there was a Russian weightlifter banned recently for doing drugs that was named Ilya. Oh, wow. <laughs> how does he fucking know this weird ass shit, dude? <laughs> well, at least now I know how to say it. Ilya. And his last name is what? His last name was Ilan. So his name was Ilya Ilan. His full name is Ilya Il- Ilan. I see, I can't even fucking say it. <laughs> Yeah, Ilya. Okay, cool. But yeah, Ilya then pulled Michael from the car and began punching him. Hmm. At about 9.45pm, at least four witnesses saw one white man assaulting another man. Attempting to escape, Michael ran towards the highway. He appeared to be calling for help on his cell phone. Oh. Two of his attackers caught up with him on in the right lane of the highway. Because he was, like, obviously trying to run away. Yeah. And Ilya pursued Michael across the guardrail, caught up with him in the right lane, and punched him. Michael ended up backpedaling into the middle lane and was struck by a car. No. Fuck. He ran there to get away from them. Mm Mm-hmm. Fuck. One of the attackers dragged Michael back to the side of the road. What? (laughs) He killed they literally just dragged him out of the way. 
Ilya was seen rifling through Michael's pockets after he was struck. Oh my god. They weren't even trying to, like, help him? Mm-mm. Motherfuckers. Nope, and they, like... I'm assuming they fled, because, mm -hmm. like, there was witnesses that saw stuff, but, like, it doesn't say anywhere. Like, I couldn't find that much information on it, but I'm assuming they fled, because police, like, still had to do their investigation. Find them that. later on. Track yeah. them down, yeah. Scumbags, dude. Yeah. But unconscious and suffering possible brain injuries, Michael was taken to Brookdale Hospital where he was placed on a respirator and remained in a in a brain coma. Oh, okay. They basically said he was a vegetable. Oh. I don't know how to say the word vegetative. Vegetable? Vegetative state? Yeah, that. Okay. Like, no brain stuff happening at all, basically. Yeah, no brain actions. They basically, the machines were keeping him alive. Oh, fuck, dude. Um, but yeah, he remained on life support for five days without regaining consciousness until October 13th, 2006, one day after his 29th birthday, when his family made the decision to remove life support. It was almost his off. birthday, too? Yeah, well, it was the day after. Oh, that so somehow sad. makes it worse that he probably, whenever he was meeting up with them, was like had birthday plans and stuff coming up. I don't know why that makes me feel really more sad. Because <laughs> it is sad. It is sad. Like, looking forward to stuff, I guess. He wasn't done living. He was so young, dude. <laughs> Following the attack, police got their first lead in the case from Michael's computer, which was still running the day after he was struck by a car. Whoa. Yeah, I guess he, like, left it on. That's really good. <laughs> That's kind of lucky because you don't need a password or nothing. Yeah. Especially like back then. <laughs> I feel like it was probably harder to get into stuff because people didn't know anything about computers. True. I sound like I think everyone was just really stupid back then. I'm sure people knew what to do. <laughs> Such no, a I millennial. Mean, but they probably weren't sharing passwords. That You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. Investigators examined the hard drive and found exchanges with the AOL? AOL? A oh, AOL. Yeah. <gasps> Anyone older than us? Because I'm only a year older than you, but I know what AOL is because I have like older siblings. We're going to make people feel really old that you didn't know what AOL was. No, I do know what it was. I just forgot. Like, I was like, you're like, AOL? So, yeah, time twister. <laughs> I do know what it is, though. Okay. We're like, you guys aren't old, we swear. We know what AOL is. AOL, screen name, Fisheye Fox. Fisheye Fox. Yeah. It's a weird one. And if you remember, John Fox. Oh, I did yeah. not. So they, they were able to trace the IP address. Uh, I dress. I dress. <laughs> <laughs> Killing it. <laughs> Oh, forgive me. Address. <laughs> the IP address. And learned that the screen name belonged to John Fox. Oh my god. Um. So yeah, investigators visited John's home at 11pm. And John's... He, he didn't live there, I guess. Or he was at school. Oh. Um. So his dad actually was like, actually go to his school. To <gasps> Sunny Marine Time College. Okay. Where John was a sophomore. Shit, dude. His dad was like, yeah, just go see him at class. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's at school. Go bug him over there. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably not important. <laughs> um, But yeah, investigators arrived at the college at 2 a.m. and asked John to come to the precinct where they began interviewing him. During his interview, John made statements implicating himself <laughs> and the three did. other guys Jesus Christ yeah they weren't very smart I'd imagine that most murderers are not very smart <laughs> true especially if you get caught yeah big true <laughs> <laughs> but he also gave two videotape statements oh wow and then they were basically trying to find out who the other guys were mm -hmm. and they found a picture of Ilya 
on yeah. his my sp- my my Facebook. Woo! <laughs> I'm at MySpace. Jesus, I'm struggling. Oh. oh, MySpace. On his MySpace page, and he just like he didn't give a name, but he was like, "That's just that Russian kid." <gasps> okay. <laughs> That's kind of weird, <laughs> right? But a detective ended up comparing the picture to mugshots of young men arrested in that, like, area. hmm And they found a match. That's nutty, actually, that that happened. <laughs> right? And it was Ilya. So detectives went to Ilya's home and asked him to come to the police station for an interview. Good. <laughs> <laughs> On October 10th, at about 8 p.m., Ilya arrived at the station where he was read his Miranda rights and later gave state implicating himself in the crime oh fuck I know I'm like these guys shit like obviously I'm glad they implicated themselves I'm like you're supposed to be like can I get a lawyer (laughs) right especially since he's been arrested before literally like maybe that's why Miranda rights maybe that's why he's like been in trouble before because he's like never got out of these charges because he never knew to hit up a lawyer you're right. I didn't <laughs> think about that. But yeah, he ended up giving a written statement, a videotape statement as well. Well. And witnesses actually identified John and Ilya out of a lineup. Oh, wow. That's actually crazy. Yeah, they got picked out of the lineup because those were the witnesses that saw um, them grab Michael out of the car and stuff. Oh, my God. I... I feel like an asshole saying this, but I really do wish that the witnesses had done something the day that it happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's the bystander effect, which we've talked about so many times. They're like, mm, someone else will do it. He's fine. <laughs> True. Um, Anthony surrendered to police on October 25th. His family actually raised $1.3 million in hopes he would get bail, but it was denied. Who the fuck was giving the money for this? Right? I was like, that's annoying. That's stupid. I'm glad it was fucking denied. That's hilarious. Yeah, they were all denied. Um, (laughs) Get fucked. (laughs) Get wrecked. (laughs) But they were all held at Rikers Island without bail. Whoa, isn't Rikers like really intense? Yeah. I I guess most prisons probably are, huh? Yeah. Well, I know I, I just, it's a big name, you know, you hear it, it all the time name. in SVU. Oh God, we keep referencing SVU. <laughs> we don't know much about New York, if everyone. You, you should go watch it. They're like, this was an especially heinous crime. <laughs> 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 dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. Oh, me too. I haven't seen it in so long. I should watch it again. I literally was watching an episode during lunch. It's, it's funny how I'm saying I should watch more. I literally have, like, nightmares all the time because I read all this scary shit. <laughs> and then I'm like, Aww. oh, I should, I should watch this for you. <laughs> Hello, they're on season 22. Oh, my God. Are they ending anytime soon? I don't know. The other day, I randomly saw, like, We Love Mariska was trending. And I was like, why? Well, she better not be leaving. I don't even watch this show, but I'm like, she better not leave. I mean, I feel like they might soon because they just did a spinoff with Stabler. What? Stabler's back? Yeah, he came back for like two episodes. And then now he has his own spinoff. It's called Law and Order Organized Crime. Oh, shit. I should watch that. Honestly, I know. I want to start watching it. I It's been brought to my attention that a lot of TV shows like that are low-key copaganda. Which is like cop propaganda. Which honestly agreed. But, uh... Still entertaining, I can't lie. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever think yeah. about the stuff that Stabler used to do and be like, oh, if that was real life, that's hella illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just have to be like, like, this is boy, really fake. How do you still have a job? I'm like, bro, you should be a Rikers. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you go crazy. Dude, I would watch that. I remember watching as a child. Sorry to go on a little tangent here. And I remember watching his character chasing a criminal. And by that point, I was like, Oh, why doesn't he just shoot the criminal running away? And I'm older and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> this show had me thinking, yeah, just shoot someone running away from you. Oh my god. But it is a good show, I can't lie. 
<laughs> Sorry to interrupt your story. <laughs> oh, no worries. I mean, I was the one that got sidetracked too. True. We just keep going on these Law and Order SVU tangents. <laughs> What's the episode name? <laughs> <laughs> and SVU. Um, but yeah, following Michael's death, John, Anthony, and Ilya were indicted on October 25th, 2006 on charges of second-degree murder as a hate crime and attempted robbery as a hate crime. I'm really glad that they added that hate crime to the charges because they did not do that for mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm really I'm glad. glad, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. The three also faced possible charges of manslaughter as a hate crime and faced up to 25 years to life in prison. Whoa. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. On that same day, Gary Timmons pled guilty to one count of attempted robbery in the second degree as a hate crime. But it was like a lesser charge. Yeah. And he pleaded guilty to... To the reduced crime in return for testifying as a prosecution witness. <laughs> so he just snitched on all his friends. Yeah, basically. Whoa. I mean, he was the youngest out of all of them. He was 17. True. Uh, oh. But yeah, when they were asked for a motive, um, they all made statements indicating that they had used the internet to lure gay men in the past. They'd done it before. Yeah, but I don't think they've killed anyone before. Oh, yeah, but still, they had but, they lured people, beaten them, and robbed them? Yeah, like, obviously, this is premeditated. And obviously, Fuck. that's, like, frustrating, too, because they've obviously done it before. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I feel like gay men, the other gay men weren't, like, comfortable, like, Coming reporting forward. it, you know? It's like how I said in mine, like, they knew that they wouldn't be supported by police, so they just didn't bother. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so sad. I'm like, if imagine if those other men, or like, they could have been like young adults too that yeah. would have reported it. They probably could have stopped, you know. Yeah, but at the same time, you never know. They could have not been taken seriously, and just it still have happened anyway. True. I hope that they don't like feel bad about it, but uh, that's fucked up. Yeah. Not the other victims, I mean. I hope that the murderers feel bad. <laughs> let me let me clarify that real quick. I hope that they feel really shitty about themselves. On September 10th, 2007, Anthony Fortunato and John Fox were charged with two counts of second-degree murder, one as a hate crime, four counts of attempted robbery, with two of those as a hate crime, Whoa. two manslaughter counts, one as a hate crime, and two assault counts, one as a hate crime. Holy shit. <laughs> I was like, shit. Those are some uh, big that's, names that's charges. A of, that's a lot of uh, fucking counts. Yeah, and all with a hate crime. Yeah. That's so crazy. But yeah, Ilya Shrove was tried separately at a future date on the same charges. Oh, okay. And if you're curious, uh, they were all found guilty. Thank you, I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Anthony was sentenced to 7 to 21 years. He was 21 years old when he was sentenced. Mm-hmm. And he was actually paroled in 2015. He served 8 years. Oh my god, I hope he's not homophobic anymore. I mean, I don't know. I try to look for them. But nothing. But they nothing probably changed their names. Up, yeah. <laughs> um, John Fox was sentenced to 13 to 21 years. He was 20 years old when he was sentenced. And he served 10 years and was paroled in 2017. Whoa. That's not yeah, a long like, time. Yeah. <laughs> pretty recent. So he was about 30 when he got oh. out. Okay. And Ilya is still in prison, but is scheduled to be released either, it says, the earliest 2021 and the latest to 2024. So potentially later this year. Yeah, if that if he's not weird. out already. Oh, shit, right? I feel like they don't <laughs> update the stories, like, once they're actually out. They're like, oh, yeah, next next week. 
and then they never say anything else <laughs> yeah oh my gosh i just really my story that i said before about charlie at least gave me hope like oh i really hope that they all regret it <laughs> that they're not like that anymore because otherwise they're really young and that's scary i guess uh, michael sandy's death also brought back public attention of the death of michael griffin griffith that sounds kind of familiar well it was almost the same thing it was racially motivated whoa but it was basically i forgot how many it was a group of like white kids that basically beat the shit out of oh my gosh this 20 i think it was 23 years old black man oh that's so young and yeah they literally like severely beat him and he ran away too and i think he was hit by a car too so it was like literally the same what thing what the fuck i've never heard of this before today like this happening to people god that's scary yeah. i hope that those people were charged too it says they were convicted of second degree manslaughter and first degree assaults good fuck them well, it says three of them were. One of them was acquitted. That's stupid. Don't know why. Oh my god, his name. Been. One of the, one of the guy's name is John Lester. John Lester. Yes. Is that the name of one of the other ones? No, I mean, like, <laughs> Chess Lester the molester. Oh, stupid. I'm like <laughs> the way you said it I was like wait was that one of the kids names because that doesn't no. sound familiar and then I literally I thought Lester I thought Chester the molester and I was like no that's too immature Brandy wouldn't say that and here <laughs> we are <laughs> oh my god damn that was literally like the same story that's so weird but that's happened more than once how does that happen more than once Right? And it's probably happened more times. It's just not... Hasn't been reported. We don't want to hear about it. Yeah, because I hadn't ever heard about Michael's story. Ridiculous. Very. Shall I say my second story? Yeah. Okay. So this story is going to be much, much shorter than the first, but I'm going to be telling you all about Nyria Johnson and Brandy Coleman. In 2003, Nyria was 17 and her friend Brandy was 18. I wasn't able to find, like, anything on these two girls, but what I do know is that they were friends and lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. Nyria, at least, was a black trans woman, but I couldn't confirm anywhere if Brandy was also in the LGBT community or she was cishet, but I'm still going to be including her in this story for reasons you can guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's tripping me out and we, every time you say Brandy, though. Isn't it? Yeah. And I, I'm sorry, but I mention their names a lot. <laughs> ah, I'm going to be like, huh? You're like, <laughs> it me? <laughs> On June 18th, 2003, Nyrea and Brandy were riding around with their friend Adrian Beverly when they spotted a 20-year-old man named Paul Moore riding in a car driven by 24-year-old Curtis Ward. The trio asked them to pull into a gas station and I don't know if it's because it was like the early 2000s and this was like a pickup thing that they were doing, right? Like they pulled them over to be like flirty. Mm. <laughs> I know I wanted to text like my older siblings and be like, hey, was this a thing where people would see someone cute around their age and be like, hey, pull over so I could get your number. <laughs> maybe. But maybe, I honestly. The, the, the song uh, No Scrubs. True 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 you know what and it didn't work out for him but it worked out for these people <laughs> so in the parking lot Nyrea and Paul got out spoke for a little and exchanged numbers Nyrea kissed him on the cheek as she left and they agreed that they'd meet later Paul remembers thinking that Nyrea was attractive and he didn't realize that she was trans at the time the two spoke over the phone a couple of times over the next few days but Paul denies that he saw her in person again Brady and Curtis also exchange phone numbers. <laughs> At 12.51 a.m. on July 23rd, Brandy called Paul's number to talk with Curtis before she drove herself and Nyrea to Paul's home using her mom's Jeep Cherokee. The four hung outside for a little and talked before heading inside the apartment. They then split up into pairs with Brandy and Curtis headed into Curtis's room while Nyrea and Paul headed for a different room 
where the two then had a sexual encounter. I saw it described as sex somewhere. I saw it described as a sexual encounter somewhere. And then some other places said they might not have even done anything. So we'll go with sexual encounter. Fair enough. Yeah. Later on that night, Paul showed up in Curtis's room with a handgun and asked to speak with him. The two headed into the kitchen where Paul, visibly upset, began to ask if his friend knew whether Nirea was a man or a woman, to which Curtis said she looked like a woman to him. They together then went into the living room where Nirea and Brandy had gone and began to interrogate the pair on if Nirea was a man. I'm not sure what was said, but they were talking about this for 40 minutes before Nirea had to get up to go and use the restroom. Paul followed her and, like, burst into the bathroom and discovered that she was actually a trans woman, exclaiming, man, this is a boy. By the way, like, he didn't seem, like, creepy enough before, and he's definitely going to seem creepy after. Following someone into the bathroom to see their genitals is fucking creepy. (laughs) Invasive and wrong. Very. Yes, exactly. Those are better words than creepy. (laughs) I just read it and I was like, ew, dude. Fucking weirdo. It's that toxic masculinity. It is. Like, I was in talk about the into. I didn't even write it. But I'm like, what is with straight dudes who are like, oh, I hooked up with a trans woman. And then they have a fucking crisis over it. And I'm like, okay, first of all, that doesn't make you gay. But also, why the fuck would you be freaking out this much if you were gay? Like... Fucking look inside yourself, you homophobic bitch. (laughs) Grow up. (laughs) And don't follow people into the bathroom. That's weird. Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, people worried about trans people in the bathroom. And I'm like, well, what about these cis people following them to look at their genitals? (laughs) That's weirder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway. Paul began to talk about how he felt like his manhood had been violated and threatened to whip their ass or possibly kill them. He then asked Curtis to get some wire, which they used to bind Nerea and Brandy's hands behind their back. Nerea had begun to cry and apologize, saying that she didn't mean it, she'd never do anything like that again, and that she would turn straight. Paul ignored her sobs and put the two teenage girls in the back seat of their car, telling Curtis to follow them in the other car. Paul drove the girls out to a wooded area in Fall Creek Quarter Park, Indianapolis, where he shot Nerea and Brandy to death. They were both shot in the forehead. After murdering the two teenagers, Paul dismantled the handgun and threw the pieces out while telling Curtis how he had to do it. The men then headed back home. The following afternoon, Paul called Curtis with the idea that they should set the car with Nyrea and Brandy's bodies in it on fire. Curtis spoke to Paul's 26-year-old half-brother, Clarence McGee, about this because somewhere in this story that no one talks about This dude, Clarence, also saw their bodies. I have no idea when this happened. I'm assuming he drove with them, like, to the park, like, maybe he was with Curtis, but literally no mention of this half-brother until they're talking about the fire. But that night, Curtis and Clarence went back to the park with a can of gas and set the car on fire. That same night, someone called 911 to report a burning vehicle. Firefighters arrived and found Nyrea and Brandy's bodies lying in the backseat of the car. Their remains had been burned so badly that identification was initially impossible. They couldn't even tell, like, what sex the victims were. Even though it wasn't confirmed at that point that the girls had been murdered, police were treating it as a homicide case, saying, It's much easier to treat this as a homicide now instead of treating it as an arson and later find out it was not arson and not having evidence against the person we will eventually find. And I thought this was, like, fucking obvious. Like, bodies were found in a car on fire. Of course, you'd assume it's homicide. <laughs> they give this long explanation. I'm like, well, no shit, buddy. <laughs> the next day, July 24th now, the bodies of the two girls were identified when Brandy's mom, who worked at FedEx, was watching a news report and recognized the car's FedEx license plate as her own. Their names were released that day, along with autopsy reports showing that they had died from gunshot wounds to the head. I also read on one website only that Brandy had, like, blunt trauma to the chest and, like, throat area, but I didn't read anything else about that. I don't know if that's like, wasn't true or if she got one of them, like, hit her or maybe, I don't know, something happened in the car where she got hit. I have no idea. 
On July 31st, Paul Moore was arrested for the murders when Adrian, the other friend that the girls are driving along with the night they'd first met him, recognized him as the passenger she'd seen in Curtis's car. The police were also led towards them because the bullets removed from the victims matched a gun that was taken from Paul during a disturbance the year before, which had been released to his mom. Paul was charged with murder, confinement, and arson, while Curtis was arrested and charged with confinement, arson, and assisting a criminal. Clarence was also arrested, but I could not find out what he was initially charged with. In April of 2004, Paul and Clarence went on trial, where Curtis actually testified against them in exchange for lesser charges. So, much like your stories, one of them flipped. <laughs> the brothers were both found guilty. Paul was convicted on two counts of murder, criminal confinement, arson, while Clarence was convicted of arson, assisting a criminal, and obstruction of justice. On May 4th, Paul was given combined sentences of 120 years, 55 consecutive years for the murders, and concurrent 10-year sentences for all the other charges. He tried to appeal his sentence in May of 2005, but it was upheld. Clarence, meanwhile, was sentenced to 10 years in prison for being an accomplice. And I could not find out how long Curtis was sentenced if he was at all, so I'm wondering if like his deal got him out of being charged at all, or having to serve time at least. And that's, like, basically it for the story. But I was super disappointed researching it because most of the articles I read dead named Nyrea and referred to her as a cross-dresser or a gay man rather than as a trans woman. Like, mm. literally, during the trial against her killers, even the prosecutors who, like, were on her side still referred to her by her dead name and by he-him pronouns. But... Yeah, no, that's basically it. That just annoyed me. I actually, like, made a vocal noise, like, how I would just be like, ugh. And Robert was like, what? And I was like, oh, it's just a really annoying story. <laughs> yeah, I hate it. I hate it so bad. And me and Brandy were actually talking before this. We both almost talked about the same story. Now that was included it. And I thought it was about a gay kid, but it was actually a little trans girl. But I fell for the dead naming. And I didn't know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, please, God, reporters, do yeah, your job I mean, correctly. What we were talking about, I was like, I hate how they're, like, so inconsiderate and use, like, dead names or they misgender. Dude. I'm like, yes. have some fucking respect, bro. Yeah. Whenever I was, like, looking at pictures of Nyrea, like, thankfully people cropped this part out, but the original news story showed, like, her picture and then with her dead name on top. And I'm like, okay, well, now I'm gonna have to edit this picture if I upload it. <laughs> it's so fucked up. And I'm pretty sure her gravestone has her dead name on it as well. Which is very upsetting. But yeah. That's it for my story. Brandy, would you like to share those sad facts that you sent me? Oh, sure. You guys, we got some... It depressing facts here <laughs> in case you weren't sad enough yet <laughs> um did you know <laughs> that in 2021 we have already seen at least 28 transgender or gender non-conforming people that have been violently murdered attacked yeah. mm -hmm. and 28 killed. people yeah, and I feel and I like... You said last year it was 44? Yes, I believe so, yeah. So we're, like, mm. on track to be last year, it seems. Dude. Well, literally, and... the most recent one that's on here happened literally... I mean, this episode's gonna come out later. But this it happened on coming May out in just 11th. a couple days. Oh, my May God. May 11th. I... That was, nope. li like, literally a month ago. I bet that there's others that have happened that they still haven't been added to this list yet yeah that's exactly what i thought i'm like dude there's i'm sure there's some that happened Fuck. already in june it's just not on here yet i'm also nervous with stuff opening back up i'm like oh man that leaves people like more vulnerable but i guess also on the other side of it if you're in an unsafe environment and you're trans it could have been really bad being locked down mm-hmm I guess it's just always bad when people are transphobic. So if you guys could just quit it, that'd be great. <laughs> you don't gotta understand it. Just respect it. Just don't be alone. a fucking murderer or an asshole. Let them live their life. Yeah. Bitches. Assholes. <laughs> we got them. 
nobody's transphobic anymore, Brandy. We did it. Good job. <laughs> Everyone was like, wow, they're right. I'm not going to do it anymore. Then. If only. <laughs> well, do you have anything else to add? Mm. Happy Pride. <laughs> Happy Pride, everyone. It's our second of four Pride episodes, so... Yeah, sorry, guys. This is going to be a dark month. And no, I say this every time. It's just a dark show. It's just a dark show. <laughs> <laughs> I I always say, like, oh, this episode's really dark. And I'm, like, literally called spooky shit. Like, what, <laughs> what do people yeah, expect? It's pretty fucking spooky. It, it, yeah, All it is. Facts, bro. I must say I agree. <laughs> but if any of you would like to email us any personal stories or just say anything at all, say hi, you can email us at thespookyshit.pod at gmail.com. You can follow us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram at spookyshit underscore pod, and our website is spookyshit-pod.com. We also sell some merch if you go and check out our spring tea, which I keep getting emails saying that they're changing it to spring. So go check out our spring. And yeah, leave us some reviews because those are nice too. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. And I guess we'll catch you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.